talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Hello, welcome to our podcast. Uh, the title will be a work in progress from here on out, but the idea behind it is to engage in something of a more legitimate leftist or, you know, socialist perspective critique of the seminal political TV show, The West Wing. My name is Stu. I am married to a woman who is obsessed with The West Wing, and this show's cultural resonance and impact on, frankly, people our age and almost an entire generation of young people's coming up into the political world, into political awareness. I mean, it's been indelibly stamped and shaped by the West Wing. So, 100%. I, <laughs> that, is, that is my co-host Dave. Dave, Hi. say hello. Hello, I'm Dave. I will be joining Stu on this journey through critiquing the West Wing from a more leftist perspective as we go through each episode and journey through this neoliberal hell world that Aaron Sorkin has constructed and has told you that this is the greatest of all worlds and better things are not possible. Uh, I'm a fan of the show as well, and I'm actually a big fan of Aaron Sorkin myself for as much grief as we're going to be giving him throughout this podcast. The man is an excellent writer and can write snappy dialogue like nobody else. And the show itself is very entertaining if you view it as fiction, but because it is about politics, the show can't help but inject its politics into its fiction, and that gets us to where we are. Yeah, and to be perfectly frank, again, I'm also, as a, as a consumer of art, just kind of generically, I am a big fan of Aaron Sorkin's ability to craft dialogue, interaction between characters, you know, all of this stuff. And the show itself, frankly, served as a jump-off point for, to be honest, me. You know, people like me who mm -hmm. may have lived their lives, their young lives. I was uh, 15 years old when The West Wing mm -hmm. premiered. And who may have lived their young lives without any connection to the broader political landscape, you know, awareness of how these things worked. And so I think it serves, there's an invaluable purpose that the show serves. However, when it kind of teeters over that edge into informing real life perspectives on issues and viewing these things through a rosy lens, mm -hmm. it, it starts to do a little bit of harm to the, the quote unquote discourse here. Of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so let's, first, for this first episode, we're not going to look at any particular episode of the show, we just wanted to discuss the show as sort of this broader political slash media movement of, you know, this sort of end of history narrative that we had going on in the 90s slash 2000s where, you know, we thought we had solved everything, the world was, you know, the world was flat, to quote the centrist Thomas Friedman. <laughs> Um, and basically painting this sort of, not just rosy, but almost, uh, like, hollowed view of the people at the top of power, and just how, you know, they can do no wrong, and they're the best people who are doing their best, and it's just, it's a very uncritical view of our politicians at the highest level. 
Yeah. And I mean, just to kind of put some generic stuff out there, um, I'm a member of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. I firmly believe in kind of a socialist framework and a, a Marxist analysis of kind of the broader socio-political landscape. Um, you know, I'm not formally educated in any of this stuff. I've come around to it somewhat organically by twists or turns. You know, I haven't particularly read any books on theory. You know, I've got the Communist Manif Manifesto under my skin, so to speak. <laughs> but, you know, I, I can't particularly claim to have any formal political education in this sphere. So, you know... Well, if... thankfully, neither does Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> <laughs> well, and hopefully... And again, this, this... What I'm hoping to get out of this, in, to a certain degree, is also to encourage myself to do some more examination of my beliefs, to learn things um, yeah. as we go along. Ideally, uh, we would love for this to become a semi-educational as well as entertaining podcast where we, you know, both bring up you know, the bad way the West Wing presents an issue, and then hopefully give a better take on what we think is the more proper view of the issue, or at least some education about the issue that the West Wing did not deem necessary to give us, the viewer. <laughs> and before I tip too far into the uh, realm of self-deprecation, I do have um, a master's degree in public health with a focus on environmental health studies. So oh. any of this environmental issues that come up, in the show, I will be able to bring some, uh, pretty much... Well, I have a be. bachelor's degree in marketing, so I can tell you when they're making a lot of bad marketing decisions, <laughs> and trust me, they make plenty, because Ooh. this show gets to talking about campaigning and whatnot, but that's all down the line. And so, to kind of set the stage, we figured that our first episode would deal with the show a little bit more broadly. Um, it's, honestly, it's impossible to deal with the West Wing from sort of a serious perspective without placing it huh, within its time in history. So <laughs> the show premiered uh, basically in the fall of 1999. Um, for people our age, you know, again, I'm 35, so... 32 this was, years. Yeah, this was beginning of high school, middle, middle school stuff. So at the time, we probably weren't paying much attention to, you know, the broader perspective of what was happening in the world so with my the, interest at the time was how good the phantom menace was going to be so <laughs> that's how politically aware i was yeah i was uh, busy weeping over a long-term girlfriend <laughs> anyway um so back in the late 90s it, it, with the benefit of hindsight at this point it's kind of looked at there was a very interesting time of sort of how information flowed through American society, you know, it was considered sort of the kickoff of the uh, the Sopranos as a golden age time of television, mm -hmm. wherein this prestige TV was being sort of launched as a concept and doubtless had some, you know, networks shaken in their boots. Right, we were bit. seeing a shift away from the kind of episodic, ephemeral, not really saying anything type show to a more serialized message-focused type show overall. Well, and broadly, you can see that in the evolution of the West Wing itself, whereas it starts with these shows being like, you know, you have this sense of a common thread of issues from episode to episode, like, say, in season one, but even that, like, within two or three seasons, it bends towards this much more 
coherent central narrative and mm-hmm. picture of a longer, I, I don't know, you like the campaigning, all these right. things tie together, whereas in the first season, a lot of it is, oh, well, this happened, yeah. and here's the president to deliver a message at the end of the show, and we're done. And wrap up the moral, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, you start seeing a lot more episodes that literally flow, like, one into the other, where it's just, it's basically a straight continuation of last week's episode. Yeah, so some of the bigger things that were kind of just going on in American politics, you know, at the end of the 90s, you know, a lot of people remember this, a lot of liberals remember this time period quite wistfully, you know, of the Bill Clinton presidency. It was technically the longest period of economic expansion um, in United States history uh, mm-hmm. between the crash of the early 90s and the recession that followed on 9-11 and basically the fallout from the bursting of the dot-com bubble. Um, right. Right. So there's there's a lot of idea, uh, excuse me, ideology. There's a lot of um, sort of idyllic perception of this time period because frankly as much as liberals wistfully yearn for the time of bill clinton he did a bunch of shitty things right during (laughs) his administration but but ones Uh, that we wouldn't feel the shittiness of until much later on so there was was this view that you know during this time like you could just walk down the street and people were giving away high quality jobs and you know things were you know peaches and cream like and but it's it's sort of a, a narrative that is a rosy tinted view of the economic situation. Well, particularly because like at that time it was, and this show it takes tremendous so many pages out of their playbook from just the generic, the political class. You know, we talk about it these days right. being these economic elites and whatever the parlance of the, the fucking right wing psychos when they talk about this stuff. But in the mid nineties. It was all, there was a very much a pastiche of just kind of generic agreement that we were achieving success just because across we were making a broad more spectrum. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and the lead up to the show when it was being recorded probably at the very beginning of the year of 1999, I mean, in the last five years, you know, we passed NAFTA. Uh, they'd done the literally the breaking the back of the welfare state in the United States um, mm-hmm. in the Clinton administration. I mean, work fair. Exactly. You know, yeah. means testing was becoming de rigueur for all these social programs. Mm-hmm. So all this stuff was unfolding and sort of informing the political class perspective of, well, yeah, we're making progress and doing it without really having any tie even to let's just say, anybody who didn't live on K Street or work on K Street. Right. And I think a theme you're going to see as we go throughout the show is the emphasis on polls, polling, and reacting to polling results. And again, this is something that they lifted heavily from the Clinton White House because the Clinton White House was obsessed with polling. Um, (laughs) And while polling can be fine and good and useful in certain situations, if all you're doing is polling people and reacting to polls and trying to figure out what's most of America like and let's just do that and not actually have any inner vision or path that you want to go down, you you find yourself, well, in the situations our heroes will often find themselves in. Yeah, well, and from a foreign policy perspective, this was an interesting time in the United States as well where we had theoretically not been engaged in what would, I, I guess, what could, could tropishly be considered as a major uh, military conflict. 
right. overseas for quite some time since the end of Desert Storm. Right, um, which no one considered major necessarily at the time. Sure, and even then it's like, you know, we had Bosnia going on in the mid-90s. We had uh, the Somalian crisis that we were heavily involved with militarily, but not really in sort of a, like a fighting force sort of perspective. So this was a very just broadly considered to be positive and America number one time in the country. And kind of the last point that I want to make is that throughout the run of the show, 9-11 literally happened in the middle of what would have been the show's third season. Correct. Um, And one of the things that watching this with the benefit of hindsight now that is the weirdest thing to me is that 9-11 happened in the third season of the show and it is almost entirely elated Correct. from the show's canon. There is Correct. no... There is no, <laughs> there is no shift. There is no pre-9-11, post-9-11 America-style t- shift. There's no heightening of security. There's nothing. And there's no, like, and I, I can't specifically remember, because I don't really have that good a command of the show, but I can't even remember anything where they juxtapose a shot of the downtown New York skyline with uh, anything, either at the never, towers. They only go to New York maybe once or twice, and both times I don't recall them showing the skyline. I could be wrong, of course, but uh, it's mostly such a DC-focused show that the very few times they do travel... Uh, we barely see anything at all. Yeah, and so the basically what the defining American political moment is irrelevant to the evolution of the show's universe. Well, to be fair, they did write a play non-canon episode to talk about 9-11 that never comes into the show's actual canon or continuity. And that was really fucking bad. That was extremely ham-fisted, and <laughs> hashtag not all Muslims, you guys. You know it. Let's talk about the Jews coming out of exile. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of the the broader sort of historical perspective. And again, don't at me about this because I was 15 when it was going on. But, you know, I've got <laughs> some perspective in hindsight of how the sort of the, its placement within, frankly, I mean, American cultural history at this point agreed okay so let's talk about the man the myth the legend the creator himself mr aaron sorkin uh aaron's sorkin has been a writer in hollywood for many decades now uh some of his work beyond the west wing of course the show sports night he did right before the west wing uh, a few movies, a few good men, American President, Social Network, one of my personal favorites. Uh, really love that movie. Uh, again, as fiction, you know, it is not the story of what happened with Facebook, but as a fictional movie, it's really, really good. Um, after The West Wing, he would then go on to do Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, which Ooh. is a whole mess of a show uh, <laughs> that, funny enough, dueled with 30 Rock and lost heavily. <laughs> I would say mercifully lost yes. heavily. <laughs> yes. Uh, of the two shows making fun of SNL, 30 Rock handily crushed Studio 60. Um, but Aaron Sorkin is known for a few things. Uh, probably most famously is pioneering, if not creating it, definitely popularizing the walk and talk, which we will be seeing 
often throughout West Wing where characters walk down the hallway talking to each other. Basically, a great uh, cinematic device to take two people in a room talking, which is extremely boring, and add enough visual entertainment of, you know, they're passing by staff, you know, papers are going around, someone gets handed a note, you know, all of these things keep your mind and your brain kind of occupied so you're not focused on the boringness of just two people back and forth. In. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's, it's essentially, it's a, it's a mobile two-shot, right? So, right. you know, it's, it's not the most complicated, uh, I guess, scenario to have, but he did the job of making it dynamic. And it, it was a great choice for the show, because like I said, it does add this dynamic energy that you so desperately need, or otherwise this would be nothing but Star Wars prequel levels of people sitting in a room and chatting at each other forever. Yes, because I'm, I'm sure you can grab American Network TV audiences with like discussions of tariffs on, you know, <laughs> steel and imports. <laughs> um, so Sorkin, also known for... Very good dialogue. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and call him bad at it. He is generally really good at writing snappy dialogue. It's not really how real people talk. It's kind of how like pe- smart people wish they thought they sounded like when they talk, uh, which is kind of like a good summary of West Wing in general. It's kind of like the, 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 the intellectual liberal's idea of what government really works like. Yeah, and in that way, it's sort of like it's Sorkin is projecting his his intellectual id onto right. the page. Right, what if everyone talked to. as smart as I did? <laughs> yeah, essentially, as, as smart as I imagine I do. Right. Um, Sorkin uh, also somewhat, I, I, I don't know in this era of, you know, hashtag me too, if his, where his ranking is behind, like, say, a Whedon type, but uh, somewhat notoriable for his... Uh, portrayal of female characters not being the best, uh, which is something we'll see as we go through each individual episode in certain places. Uh, I'm reminded of the weird straw feminist stance of Ainsley saying, I like it when I'm sexually harassed at work. Yes, indeed, and that is a resonant message for audiences in 2018. Yeah, a lot of this stuff has not dated well, uh, sadly. But, um... Sorkin himself only worked on the show for the first four seasons. Uh, after that, there was a dispute uh, over creative direction, I, uh, money, I believe, various factors. Anyway, he leaves the show after season four. Seasons five, six, and seven are then done by the other writers and directors of the show, but Sorkin has zero involvement beyond season four. Um, I mean, the only thing that I really remember about the Sorkin canon is that The American President, the movie with um, Michael Douglas and was it Annette Benning? Yeah, Annette Benning. Hadn't seen it. So it was released in late 1995 and essentially The American President is The West Wing, the movie. So <laughs> he, he basically had a feature length pitch of this show available, and I think it crushed its budget, like, it doubled up its budget at the box office. Sure, because a movie about people sitting around and talking is relatively cheap to do. (laughs) Yeah, well, and they had some real star power. Funnily enough, Martin Sheen was in The American President. He did not play the president. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You'll get him next time, Martin, don't worry. (laughs) So, yeah. 
Um, speaking of the president, we haven't. Re we're about to get into the characters thing, but I would like to say that one thing above all that really just kind of rings wrong about this is this not just veneration of the president, but religious fervor towards this idea of, like, this man is God. This man has the power of God. He will often be compared to God. Like, it is explicitly, overtly, the president is God. And it's a weird, it's a very weird thing, because America, in my mind, America's whole deal is, you know, we're a messed up country. I could sit here for three hours listing the sins of America, but the one thing that I thought was great about this country is that we threw off the monarchy. You know, our initial thing is we're rebelling against this guy who claims he's king because God says he is, and then to take this civil servant that we name the president, who we elect and we appoint and we pay for with our taxes, and, and compare him to being divinely selected by God is just very gross to me on a deep level. Oh, yeah, and we'll get into that, honestly, in the first episode. I mean, it comes yeah. out immediately in the show. Yeah, that's, they, why they that was, stage. that's why it was fresh in my mind. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, okay. I think that's a fair summation of Sorkin's work and, uh, and the themes we might be seeing as we investigate further. Okay, so let's discuss our main players in this little drama of ours, starting with the man himself, POTUS, President of the United States, played by Martin Sheen. Uh, Martin is sort of doing a idealized version of Bill Clinton, essentially, uh, given that that's obviously who they're drawing on for inspiration at the time. Uh, they, had, um, they don't really have any other major Democrat role models to pick from. Uh, he is bad at military power and foreign policy at first. We see him sort of grow into that. Uh, it's implied then that I guess he's stronger on domestic issues, but we don't really see a lot of evidence of that as the show goes on. But uh, And then, of course, he ends up having health issues later on in the show, uh, which we'll get to in time. But And that's uh, a basic summation of, of President Joe... Jada what's it? Jebediah? Josiah? I, I think Josiah. I think it's Josiah. Josiah AKA Jed. Jed, yes. Bartlett. With two teeth. <laughs> and he's like um, a, he's like a son of the revolution and like he, right, he has a long and storied uh history leading back to like the founding of New Hampshire or or what have you. Yep. So, um the president he is married to is married to um a woman whose name in the show is Dr. Abigail Bartlett. Um, they call her Abby. She's played by a one of my favorite character actors of all time, Stockard Channing, who you may know better, depending on how old you are, as Ratso Rizzo from the original Grease <laughs> movie. Um, she's, I think she's a cardiologist in the show. And, uh, internalist, something along those lines, yeah. Mm, okay, but um, she is relatively minor in the first season, as far as I recall. She gets way more involved as the show uh, evolves. Definitely. Uh, CJ Craig, a.k.a. Claudia Jean Craig, is our press secretary. Uh, played by Allison Janning, who does a tremendous job um, 
portraying CJ. She's a very gifted actress, a uh, lot of great humor, a lot of great physical work with her character. Uh, in the opening scene we first see of her, she does this great pratfall off a treadmill. I always have respect for people who do pratfalls, it's just my thing. Um, but CJ uh, plays the, basically, you know, she does a good job as press sec secretary. We see her struggle sometimes, and sometimes she has to hold things back from the press, and she has sort of moral ar arguments every now and then. CJ kind of plays the role of sort of a, uh, a, voice of, a voice of reason in some cases, um, as many of these characters often are to the president. Yeah, and she's a lot of times she's involved in sort of being that idealized sort of superego as a go-between between the administration and the press, which is, you know, what people think of a press secretary should be doing. <laughs> exactly. Um, so other kind of senior staffers in the White House throughout the show, first of all, like, chief of staff is named Leo McGarry. He is an Air Force veteran um, in the show. He's portrayed as very, I mean, at the, at the time of recording, he is, I think he was 60-something years old, so he is very much the, the dad in the administration. Right. He's considered to be like a straight shooter, and mm -hmm. but will, you know, pepper all this stuff with a very, one of the more conservative viewpoints um, in the senior staff of the White House in the show. I mean, he is pragmatic and cold sort of to the point of being mm, I don't want to say unlikable at times but again he's they, definitely the if they need a bully for an episode he's resigned to the kind of the bully role so yeah definitely not unlikable because he we're meant to think he is a sweetheart deep down of course but uh definitely one of the more cantankerous uh, of our chief uh, of our main staff players here. Yeah, and he's often slotted into the role of, like, making the hard decisions. Right, of course. The necessary hard yeah. decisions. <laughs> um, going right below him, deputy chief of staff, uh, Josh Lyman, played by Bradley Whitford. Um, and Josh is basically effectively our main character. Even though this show is about the White House and the president, the president is not really the main character of the show. Uh, I would say Josh is, ma is is our protagonist, if you're looking at it from a story structure point. He's our, he's our hero. He's the one who, that often solves the problem or, or gets the arc or, you know, has the big moment um, that, that fixes a, a, uh, a situation. Um, he's explicitly based on Rahm Emanuel, uh, according to uh, production notes, and... You definitely see that where it's more about he's more much more concerned about winning for winning's sake as opposed to the actual policies he is getting implemented by winning. Um, so there's another person who you might, from the first episode at least, think that the West Wing is going to be a show about because <laughs> at the time that they started recording. The actor Rob Lowe was quite the phenomenon in American culture, and he plays a character called Sam Seaborn. He's the deputy White House communications director, um, you know, in the staff. And he is, you know, he's a, he's a go-getter, but he's also brilliant and, you know, 
handsome and just kind of like a well, very he is very handsome <laughs> i'm not I gonna sit deny. here and lie and say and say rob Lowe is not handsome <laughs> so it is very um initially it almost comes out like this is a vehicle for rob Lowe, you know to navigate this like stories of the administration from a not exactly an underdog's perspective but what is almost um to my mind, anyway, almost blatantly a Sorkin self-insert at the. Uh, I I would agree, considering he is a writer, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, so below we as we get further down our list here, we have Donna, who uh, Donna Moss, Donatella Moss, technically, who is Josh's uh, main assistant. So she is the, as she likes to put it, jokingly, the deputy deputy chief of staff. Um, Oftentimes, it was, uh, Donna is basically used as an audience stand-in to ask the questions that the audience would love to know the answer to of like, hey, can you explain this complicated political thing you're talking about, Josh, in much more layman accessible terms? So Donna will often ask the questions that prompts Josh to explain things in a way that us, the dumb, dumb viewer, can now understand. So thanks to Donna. So... We skipped this in almost the hierarchy, but I feel like it is a, a nice contrast to Donna's role, is Toby Ziegler, who is the actual White House communications director. He's played by Richard Schiff, and like at the launch, he is very much the, the technocrat who takes Sorkin's um, strong preference for like listing out detailed attributes of things and then just like slamming them home and using you know, obscure or jargony terms to just own the shit out of people. Um, <laughs> because he's very much, he's played initially and written as an extremely um, principled and devoted, uh, I guess, to the what would be considered as the idealistic core tenets of democracy. Right. Yeah, and uh, Toby Toby's journey throughout the show is a very interesting one, to say the least. Um, going uh, another a minor character, but one that I particularly love, is Mrs. Lanningham, a.k.a. Dolores Lanningham, um, who is the main executive secretary to the president. Uh, obviously, the president, I believe, in one episode she mentions the president has five secretaries. She's just, like, the head one, and the one who sits outside... The Oval Office. Um, Mrs. Lanningham is a delightful character. There's no splitting hairs about it. She's a cranky old bat, bat and I love her to death. <laughs> uh, she will take no, none of your guff, and if you try to come in and say, hey, I need two minutes with the president, she's going to be like, you should have booked an appointment. Yeah. So she, she does her job effectively as gatekeeper to the president, which is what her role is. Yeah, and they'll use her from time to time to be, like, the, the mom or, like, the kind of the, the wizened sage, you know, out of the Definitely the more wizened people. sage yeah. than mom, but yes. <laughs> I, look, um, I don't more, know what your mom more, is like. <laughs> <laughs> more, ma more matronly, more sort of grandmotherly, I would say, okay. than uh, just because of the age characteristic. <laughs> Um, uh, so go ahead. Uh, other minor characters, um, another assistant to the president is Charlie Young. He's played by the actor Dulé Hill that you may know better um, from a more modern TV show role because he was in that awful um, 
Psych. That's it. The one where they're yes, all way too where smart he plays for their a own pharmaceutical good. sales rep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Charlie is the only um, regular African American in the cast. Correct. And this plays both, in my mind, good and bad at some times because, uh, you know, they are apt to engage in tokenism from time to time where Charlie is treated as a representative of certain, you know, more race-related issues in American politics. Right. But Oftentimes that does happen. He is, I mean, Dulé Hill is a crazy talented actor, and it's important that this kind of, it's a demographic um, bridge within the main cast and the staff of the White House. There's a pretty nice moment in the episode where we get introduced to Charlie that kind of sums all that up in a, in a way that I feel like does give Sorkin some benefit of the doubt there. Uh, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, Charlie, by the way, sits right across from Mrs. Landingham, so they often get a, light, a lot of nice back and forth and jokey moments together that we'll see in the episodes going forward. There is some comic uh, relief involved. Definitely. Uh, Charlie um, ends up having a romantic relationship one of, with one of our next characters, who is one of the daughters of President Bartlett, Zoe Bartlett, uh, played by, um, oh shoot, it's Moss. Her actual, uh, what's her, what's yeah, the actress's Elizabeth first Moss. name? Elizabeth Moss, I'm so sorry. Uh, Elizabeth Moss, who's great, uh, who uh, many people will now recognize from Mad Men and Handmaiden's Tale, and she has gone on to really explode. This was one of her first roles, and she's very young. Uh, she's playing, Zoe is meant to be 17 when the show starts, she's just about to go into college, uh, and she's basically there to be, you know, the president's daughter, essentially, and... Uh, definitely the most visible one we see. He has three daughters, and we will meet all three of them in time, but Zoe is the one that we spend the most time with. Yeah, um, Elizabeth Moss basically grew up with the show because she was cast to play a 17-year-old character when she was 17 years old. Shocking for Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> oftentimes, as we know, they'll cast, you know, 20-somethings to be high schoolers, as you'll see in any high school movie. And so that brings us to the last sort of what could be considered major character <laughs> for the time being. So I, I, I bet you're just dying to take on Mandy. Oh, Mandy. In the, in the, in the words of uh, Barry Manilow. Um, so Mandy is introduced as a political consultant uh, who is helping out a senator with a election campaign. It is implied that she and Josh used to be a romantic item. And Mandy, I honestly don't know what they were going for with Mandy, uh, <laughs> which might be why she got written out of the show in season one. Um, <laughs> Mandy doesn't stick around too long. She's the mostly park. there, I guess, to be an antagonist to our our players, our, our main crew, because she's often in conflict with them. Uh, but also she's there to occasionally provide them advice as well. It's very strange. Uh, I could tell that they didn't really have a good plan for this character, uh, which is, again, why she is unceremoniously just written off um, on, on her bus to Mandyville at the end of season one. And that's kind of the, that's really the landscape, at least for the first season. We will be introduced to many more characters along the road that make multiple appearances. Um, I think, Dave, you were saying something that this was sort of 
an ensemble cast show almost right uh this is pre-lost uh i remember lost being the first show that was like wow look at all these characters and each one of them has like a story um and before that like you didn't really see that that often in tv but this was sort of a proto version of that where we have an incredible amount of characters where most television show really focuses on about four five maybe six in the case of friends uh, characters at most we have here 10 uh, or so main characters and a expanding cast of secondary characters that will quickly grow into the dozens and each of, I mean we're not talking throwaways for any of these people either I mean there are fleshed out details which again to to their credit the writers of the show did a pretty good job of allocating time to you know, develop a character who may be on screen once every other episode, but to have little details and kind of thoughtful touches to character development that was, I don't want to say necessarily pioneering, because, you know, we had Star Trek The Next Generation 10 years prior to this show, but, you know, it was it was a really kind of a fresh and, uh, you know, a welcome change from your episodic sitcom drudgery. Totally. I would almost call it Simpsons-esque in a way, uh, although without the comedy, but much how, like, The Simpsons, every secondary character becomes a character that you know and recognize. Uh, we'll see that sim similar thing here. You know, I can name every major assistant and whatnot, because all these delightful little bits of characterization we'll see throughout the show. Yeah, and so that's the roster. That's what we're, we're going from. For people who have never seen the show or who are watching this with a fresh set of eyes, like, frankly, I am uh, and will right. be throughout this experience. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, it is, it's been a while since I've watched the show as well. Um, obviously, we'll be re-watching these episodes before we start discussing them to keep them fresh in our minds. Um, but it's good to get this character breakdown down now because the pilot episode has so much to do that they really don't get around to actually introing all these characters. Uh, you do get a sense of who they are and what position they are, but you don't really get a sense of who they are as people, um, which thankfully, since it is a television show, you get more of throughout the season. Yeah, and we're not going to, you know, we won't devote too much time in any given episode to being like, oh, well, this is because Josh is a staunch you know, constitutionalist in this regard, but it's just like, right. we'll, we'll, we'll assume a certain level of familiarity. Right, of course. Alright, so with with that, let's uh, we'll talk more in our first episode uh, when we discuss the West Wing pilot. So, we're going to try at least to follow this episodically because there is a tandem podcast that has been released. Um, <laughs> to follow the show by Josh Molina, who plays a character that we'll be introduced to in season four of the West Will Wing. Bailey. His name is the character's name is Will Bailey. Um, right. And a, a person who I don't actually know where he comes from. His name is Rishikesh Herway. Um, but apparently, just a friend of Josh Molina's, I'm guessing. Okay. And they've got a companion podcast called The West Wing Weekly that. Um. Is more Does a more a loving look at the show. Um, I listen to the to that podcast, and you know, while they do 
an okay job breaking down the show. I feel they get distracted a lot by their guests who they have on, and they get these nice, big, politically important guests who assure them that, of course, all the messages of the show were right and accurate and, and all good things. <laughs> and Josh Molina just talks about himself all the time. <laughs> it's You know what? In a charming way, I'm going to give him credit. Yeah, I said, hey, you know what? But, yeah. I, got no, I got no beef with you, Josh Molina. <laughs> but, you know, there, there, there are certain things that we can maybe take a critical eye on here. So, with I'm just going to say, before we get into anything, that one thing for the record I'll see is that oftentimes they'll have guests on who are on the show, of course, which is great. And they get to tell their stories about, like, hey, funny stories behind the scenes and whatnot. Uh, in every single time they ask them, hey, how did you get cast for the show? And in every single interview, it was, I already knew Aaron from a previous project, uh, which just sort of like blatantly exposes the naked networking like that goes on in Hollywood, where none of these people got cast from auditions. They just knew Aaron and got their way in that way. Yeah, it's the Sorkin show. So yeah, um, just to kind of wrap up, my vision and hopes for what we're doing here is basically I want to cruise through the West Wing and, you know, to a lesser extent, the companion podcast, just with my, my 2018 eyes, you know, this mm-hmm. show was something that I watched in the past and we have all sorts of fresh perspectives nowadays. Yeah. And Definitely. To, to be sure, I'm not going to be, you know, dragging people specifically the actors, the actual people for its own sake. I mean, there's going to be enough material to parse out and criticize within the show's writing and the concepts and the way they're presented. Right. Um, yeah, we're not here to, you know, most, almost all of the actors do an amazing job with the material they've, they've, they're given. We're here to criticize the material, not the acting. Yeah. Um, you know, this is the op- an opportunity for me, frankly, to kind of really do some self-reflection. And, you know, I've been researching stuff as we go along and learning new things. Um, Particularly, you know, as I've said, like, given when the broadcast run of the show actually occurred in my own life, Mm -hmm. it was a time where I could have been more politically aware, but was privileged enough, was, you know, wealthy enough and shielded enough to not bother to be and therefore almost have the, the opportunity to take this as a work of fiction in its entirety without even bothering to think about, well, wow, maybe, maybe this isn't, you know, this isn't a good phenomenon. Right. And I feel like, unfortunately that has what has led the show to become this sort of, uh, view of how politics work to our generation because so many people like you and I even viewed it their first time uncritically, uh, without even looking at, the politics or the messages and we're just sort of swept up by you know the production of it and the writing and the snappiness and the fun characters and never really critically examined it so that's kind of our goal here is to go through episode by episode and really kind of examine what exactly is the show telling us so in the future as we you know hope to get this off the ground i'd love to have guests on you know for specific topical episodes if there are certain things that um, you know, anybody who is listening, frankly, yeah, any experts, us. uh, feel free to offer your own expertise when we get to certain topics. Uh, I already have a friend who's willing to 
chime in on the map projection episode and discuss why <laughs> that's a whole mess. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that very much. But yeah, any you know any goons or anyone else who's listening who wants to come and chime in, uh, please feel free. We'll keep uh, we'll keep you updated when we post about this, and uh, you can contact us on the forums. Uh, I'm Wamplord. Stu is Gunshow Poophole. Um, and we will uh, we'll be happy to take any feedback or requests. I've actually also registered an email address for the show. It's theworstwing69 at gmail.com, so we can also take feedback there. Please feel free to reach out at any time. If you're lucky, we'll incorporate it into the show, and if you're unlucky, we'll laugh at you a bunch. And Dave and I will see you next time for the very first episode where we discuss the pilot of The West Wing. Thank you for listening.